welcome to Pod Academy. For this lecture on the changing contours of world order, given in October 2011, Professor Noam Chomsky was the guest of the International State Crime Initiative based at King's College London. Professor Chomsky was there to launch the new academic journal State Crime, which is published by Pluto Press. He's introduced by Professor Penny Green, one of the journal's editors. It's now my profound pleasure and privilege to introduce Professor Noam Chomsky. Noam is very generously launching state crime this evening. A brilliant linguist, a searing critic of US foreign policy and crimes of the powerful. His fierce critique and gentle manner stand as the moral voice of our time. The New York Times have described him as arguably the most important intellectual alive. So it's now a very great honour to hand over to Professor Noam Chomsky. Uh, Thanks, Penny. Whenever I hear that sentence quoted in an introduction, I can't resist adding the next sentence, which doesn't get quoted, which was, how can he write such terrible things about American foreign policy? (laughs) Well, it's good. I'm glad to be here on the occasion of the launch of the new journal. The journal is new. The topic obviously isn't. Uh, Might open with a word about the topic, or at least some subpart of it. Too much to cover. I'll just keep to one of the lesser state crimes, namely international terrorism, putting aside much more serious ones like aggression and so on. That topic, international terrorism, became kind of moved into the general agenda 30 years ago when Ronald Reagan entered office and his administration declared that a prime focus of administration policy would be state-directed international terrorism, called it the the plague of the modern age, return to barbarism in our time, you know, sample some of the fevered rhetoric. They had in mind, uh, you know, Cuban-directed international terrorism, which didn't exist, Russian-directed international terrorism, which maybe you could find with a microscope. They did not, but Cuba was a good choice. Cuba had, in fact, by then already had the record of being uh, the recipient, the target of more international terrorism than probably the rest of the world combined. But they didn't have that in mind, obviously. That was coming from Washington. Uh, The Kennedy administration, after the failure of the Bay of Pigs, uh, launched the campaign, Operation Mongoose, to bring the terrors of the earth to Cuba. That was the phrase used by historian Arthur Schlesinger, uh, Kennedy's uh, close Kennedy confidant, Latin American advisor. This was in his biography, more or less official biography, of Robert Kennedy, the president's brother, uh, who was uh, assigned the task of supervising the terrors of the earth as his highest priority. took it very seriously. The first book just came out of uh, oral history, which gives the first kind of record of the voices of the victims. Keith Blender, a Canadian scholar, I think he may be coming here soon. And it was very serious. It was no joke. 
In fact, it almost led to terminal nuclear war, apart from what it did to Cuba. The operation was supposed to culminate in October 1962. You may recall that that was maybe the most dangerous moment in history. It came very close to a nuclear war, and that was connected with the, the terrorist uh, crimes, which were supposed to lead to an invasion of Cuba in, in that month. Well, that's one of many examples, unfortunately, very many. At that time, uh, Reagan, in fact, launched what these days is called a global war on terror. Uh, it's pronounced GWAT, if you want to know. Don't ask me why. Uh, it also launched a, you know, a flood of uh, books and articles, uh, a new profession of terrorism studies, uh, a dubious profession, but uh, in which England is right at the peak. Uh, among the books and articles were quite a number of mine and friends of mine, uh, uh, all concentrating on just what Reagan said was the plague of the modern age, uh, state-directed international terrorism. But these books and articles can't enter the canon because they have a fundamental error of logic. I and friends of mine used the official definitions of terrorism in the U.S. Code and British government and army manuals. They're now codified in UN Security Council resolutions defining terror, General Assembly resolutions. And all of that material is politically incorrect because if you accept those definitions, it follows almost immediately that the United States is one of the lead, maybe the leading actor in, uh, in leading the plague of the modern age with Britain, its junior partner, a close second. And that's the wrong conclusion, obviously, so that can't be allowed. A book with a title like uh, Western State Terrorism, edited by a British-American philosopher who's then at Oxford, now, that can't enter the canon, clearly. Uh, so it has to be much narrower. I presume this journal won't... Uh, won't uh, meet those conditions. It's uh, one thing that was set off in the early 80s when the GWAT began was a search, a scholarly search to craft a definition of terrorism which would have the right properties. It would exclude the terror that we carry out against others but would include, of course, what they do to us, typically much less. And that's, there are some general conclusions. There were academic conferences, you know, scholarly meetings, uh, journals, as I said, a profession started. And they all agree that it's a, it's a very difficult concept to define terrorism. So you can't use the definitions that are in U.S. and British law, you know, international conventions. And you have to somehow craft a definition with the right properties. And that's hard. Uh, if anybody has any suggestions, you can get a PhD at uh, St. Andrews or somewhere by giving them an answer. Uh, but so far, they haven't really got the right definition, so it's a lot of studies still going on, and it isn't easy. Well, uh, Reagan's uh, GWAT has been uh, disappeared, to borrow the terminology of some of our victims, uh, for good reason. It, uh, his war on terror led to... Uh, appalling atrocities uh, very quickly. 
in Central America, one of the main targets, maybe a couple hundred thousand tortured, mutilated corpses. Uh, Middle East, uh, tens of thousands. Southern Africa, estimated roughly a million and a half. South African uh, depredations in the uh, surrounding countries, that's aside from what was going on in South Africa itself, uh, all supported by the United States uh, as part of the defense against terrorism. And the reason was, as the Pentagon explained in 1988, that uh, you had to defend uh, South African apartheid state against what they called one of the more notorious terrorist groups in the world. That was Nelson Mandela's African National Congress. So obviously they had to do that, and that meant supporting their depredations, which were murderers. In fact, Mandela himself just got off the terrorist list about two years ago. He can now come to the United States without special dispensation. Uh, but none of this is, uh, and a lot more like it, is appropriate for the historical record. So when Bush number two uh, declared a global war on terror in 2001, uh, that was heralded as something new, not uh, a repetition of an old and ugly story. Uh, right now, state terror is being escalated to new levels. Now, some of you may be old enough to remember that there once was a concept in British and American law called presumption of innocence. A person is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Now, that's long disappeared. Uh, now there's a license to kill anyone you want. Uh, actually, there was a transition from uh, Bush to Obama in this respect. Uh, Bush, his GWAT, uh, included uh, kidnapping people who you suspected of something or other and sending them off to secret prison camps, uh, not very nice treatment. But Obama has escalated it. Now you don't kidnap them and imprison them without charges, you just kill them. Uh, that's a massive global assassination campaign going on. And just a couple of weeks ago, it uh, escalated to a new level, uh, went beyond the license to murder suspects to a license to murder people who are suspected of uh, encouraging people to engage in what we call terrorist crimes. So in the New York Times Sunday edition, week before this, there was a headline reading, As the West Celebrates a Cleric's Death, the Mideast Shrugs. So we now not only celebrate the assassination of people uh, accused of, uh, suspected of criminal activity, but even the murder of someone, a cleric in this case, who is alleged to have inspired others to carry out crimes. In this particular case, there's been a little mumbling because the cleric who was killed happens to be an American citizen, and there's some sentimental thoughts that American citizens still have some kind of rights, uh, unlike the uh, unpeople of the world, to borrow the phrase of the great uh, British diplomatic historian Mark Curtis in his studies of uh, British state crimes since World War II. Uh, it's also worth bearing in mind that the category of terrorism is quite broad. Uh, a striking example is one of the few cases that almost came to trial. Uh, Omar Khadr is a 15-year-old boy who was uh, 
captured by American soldiers attacking his village in Afghanistan. Uh, he was taken to Guantanamo, stayed there for seven years without charge, at which point he pleaded guilty, and I won't comment on what that means after seven years in Guantanamo. Uh, so he, after pleading guilty, he was given an eight-year sentence. Uh, the charge to which he pleaded guilty was trying to defend his village from American soldiers who were attacking it, and that's obviously terror, so you've got to do this. Uh, he's a Canadian citizen, and Canada could extradite him and save him from the next eight years of prison, but they don't want to step on the toes of the master, so they're courageously uh, refusing to do this. Well, that's, uh, and none of this, of course, is completely new. Uh, some of you may even be old enough to remember the slogan of the Gestapo during the Second World War. The slogan was terror against terror. They were talking about the need to carry out terror against uh, the partisans who were also terrorists, resisting Nazi aggression. So we aren't breaking any new grounds in that respect. Well, I'll put aside the miserable topic of state terror, which this is a tiny sample, and turn to the announced topic, the contours of world order and the changes they're undergoing, which are very real. Uh, actually, one quite prominent concern these days um, is what's called American decline, current issue of the major political science journal in the U.S., American Journal of the American Academy of Political Science. You read that uh, it is a common theme that the United States, which only a few years ago was hailed to stride the world, as a colossus with unparalleled power and unmatched appeal is in decline, uh, ominously facing the prospects of its final decay. And there's also a common corollary to that, uh, namely that power is shifting, continuing its shift from east to west, you know, first to Western Europe, uh, then across the Atlantic. Now take another step forward to the rising powers of China and India. If there were any truth to that, it would mean that we're essentially going back to the 18th century uh, when they were indeed the commercial industrial centers of the world before Britain helped take care of that. Uh, well, um, American decline, in fact, is very real. The corollary, I think, is extremely dubious. Uh, they've had very impressive economic growth uh, but uh, these are very poor countries. They have very severe internal problems. Uh, they're, uh, the, the world is, in fact, surely getting a lot more diverse, but uh, despite America's decline, which is real, in the foreseeable future, I don't see any indication that uh, there's any competitor for hegemonic global power. Well, there are further qualifications that are in order. Uh, for one thing, the decline is not something new contrary to what's being said. It started in 1945. In 1945, the United States reached the peak of its power and wealth, uh, historically unprecedented. Uh, during the war, uh, the war, of course, ended the Depression. Uh, U.S. industrial production virtually quadrupled. Uh, uh, competitive, com competing industrial societies were devastated or destroyed. Uh, certainly severely harmed. The U.S. literally had 50% of the world's wealth 
There's never been anything like that in history. It also had incomparable security. Controlled the entire hemisphere, controlled both oceans, controlled the opposite sides of the, of the, uh, of the oceans. And uh, uh, the, uh, uh, it, it was uh, an enormous uh, amount of power. And it began to decline right away. Uh, so uh, by 1949, there was a serious blow to U.S. power. It has a name. It's called uh, the loss of China, which is a kind of an interesting phrase, uh, never questioned. Uh, you can only lose something that you possess. You know, like I can't lose you know your books, uh, but uh, we of course possess China, or are supposed to, and that's just taken for granted. And since we possess it and it became independent in 1949, we lost it. And the loss of China is a major issue in world affairs. Uh, that uh, was a blow to wartime plans that had been developed during the Second World War. Uh, Roosevelt's planners uh, understood very well that the United States was going to emerge from the war in a position of extraordinary power. And uh, they laid plans, careful plans, which were later implemented, uh, sophisticated plans to uh, uh, organize and run the world that they expected to dominate. Uh, they constructed what they called a grand area. Uh, the grand area was to include, uh, of course, the entire Western Hemisphere, uh, the whole Far East, uh, and uh, the former British Empire, which U.S. was taking over, British were... Britain was to be reduced to a, a junior partner, as the Foreign Office ruefully recognized. Uh, and uh, uh, that in, taking over the British Empire meant crucially taking over the, uh, uh, the energy reserves of uh, Western Asia, called the Middle East, uh, which were staggering and understood to be staggering. Uh, State Department, 1945, uh, called that a a stupendous source of strategic power, uh, one of the greatest material prizes in world history. Uh, Eisenhower later described it as the strategically most important part of the world. Uh, one of Roosevelt's leading advisors, liberal analyst, uh, statesman A. Burley, uh, observed that if we can control Middle East oil resources, we can control the world. And the U.S. didn't intend to give that up and doesn't intend to now. That's highly relevant to uh, current affairs. As one of the leading uh, British diplomatic historians, Geoffrey Warner, one of the most respected specialists on the period, is quite correct when he writes that the documentary record shows clearly that President Roosevelt was aiming at United States hegemony in the post-war world. Uh, in the early parts of the war, you know, 41 and 42, it was expected that Germany would survive as a major power. So it would be a German-run world and the grand area, an American-run world. Uh, after uh, the Russian armies started grinding the Germans down after Stalingrad, the planning changed. It was recognized that Germany wouldn't uh, survive, and the grand area plans were expanded to include the commercial and industrial center of uh, Eurasia, uh, Western Europe, uh, and also southern Europe, which was important critically because of its perceived role in protecting uh, 
energy shipments from the Middle East. In fact, Greece was part of the Near East Department of the State Department until 1974, after the U.S.-backed dictatorship was overthrown. And uh, it was not a trivial matter to uh, control all these places, plenty of violence. Uh, the, uh, within, I should say, within these domains, however large they could be, uh, there were specific plans. I might as well read them. They're still in, still formulated that the U.S. is still in operation, that the U.S. is much less easy to impose them, able to impose them. Within these domains, the U.S. was to maintain unquestioned power with military and economic supremacy while ensuring the limitation of any exercise of sovereignty by states that might uh, interfere with U.S. global designs. It's a pretty expansive vision. And the doctrines uh, do still prevail, reading the government statements, but uh, the power to uh, implement them has indeed declined. While the wartime plans were not unrealistic, uh, even before the war, the U.S. had been far and away the richest country in the world, and as I say, the war greatly enhanced that uh, wealth and power. Uh, uh, and the plans were sophisticated. Each region of the world was assigned what was called its function within the global system. Uh, so Southeast Asia, was its function was to provide uh, raw materials and resources to the former colonial masters in Britain and Malaya and so on so they could recover from the war and play their proper role within the U.S.-dominated system. Uh, each region of the world was discussed. Some of them are kind of interesting, like Africa. This was all planned by George Kennan and his State Department planning staff. Uh, Kennan is sort of one of the extreme doves. In fact, he was kicked out of the State Department because he was considered not uh, tough enough for this harsh world. It's interesting to read his proposals. Uh, with regard to Africa, Kennan proposed that uh, he said the U.S. the U.S. time wasn't much interested in Africa. So he said we should hand over Africa to the Europeans uh, for them to exploit, that's his phrase, for their reconstruction. I mean, you look at the history of Africa and Europe, you might think of a different possible relationship, but naturally that was never entertained. By now that's no longer true. The U.S. is not willing to give up uh, Africa to Europe to exploit, wants to take part in it itself. Well, uh, as I say, by 1949, this grand vision was already beginning to crumble. The loss of China was serious. Uh, shortly after that, there came the threat of loss of Southeast Asia by 1950 or so. Uh, the first uh, uh, problem there was uh, uh, Indochina, which really didn't matter that much in itself, uh, but uh, a much bigger threat was uh, Indonesia. Indonesia has quite rich, uh, rich resources. And the, the idea that Indonesia might, the loss of Indonesia, that could be serious. Uh, actually, this, the planning for the Vietnam War uh, is worth understanding. It's sophisticated. Uh, and in fact, the U.S. won most of its objectives. I disagree with a lot of my friends about 
and this general conclusion that the U.S. lost the war, I think it basically won the war. If you look at its objectives, which were laid out in the early 50s, we've got plenty of documentary material about this now, uh, Indochina, while not all that significant in itself, was regarded as what's sometimes called in the internal record, it was regarded as a virus that might spread contagion. Uh, the virus is the threat of independent, successful development, which might spread contagion in that others might follow the model and try to pursue the same path themselves. And that could be dangerous. If the virus spread, say, to Indonesia, and they pursued a path of independent development, and also to the other regions, Southeast Asia, uh, Japanese, Japan, it's called the super domino by Asia historian John Dower, Japan might move to accommodate itself to uh, increasingly independent Southeast Asia and become its industrial center, technical, industrial, commercial center. Uh, and that would have meant, in effect, that the United States would have lost the Pacific phase of World War II, which in the Pacific region was fought to prevent Japan from establishing what was called a new order in which it would, that would be its, its role. In the early 1950s, the United States was not prepared to lose World War II, so uh, something had to be done about the virus. Well, there's a way to deal with a virus that might spread contagion, a very simple way. Uh, you kill the virus and you inoculate the potential victims. Uh, the potential victims are inoculated by installing uh, vicious, murderous regimes which keep the place under control. And that's what was done uh, by the mid-1960s. Uh, Vietnam had pretty much destroyed. It wasn't going to be a model for anybody. And the surrounding regions were mostly, uh, mostly brutal dictatorships were installed. The final, most significant step was, in fact, Indonesia. In 1965, there was a military coup in Indonesia, backed, supported, maybe instigated by the United States, uh, which was very successful. The Suharto coup it, uh, immediately killed hundreds of thousands of people, uh, mostly landless peasants, destroyed the only functioning political party, a party of the poor, uh, and uh, uh, opened up uh, Indonesia to... Uh, free exploitation of its resources by the West. And that was celebrated with absolute euphoria. Uh, Western commentators couldn't keep down their enthusiasm. Uh, New York, Britain too, but the New York Times uh, described, they had described what was going on pretty accurately. The New York Times described what they called a staggering mass slaughter in Indonesia, which was a gleam of light in Asia. That was the conclusion of their liberal commentator, James Reston, uh, hope where there once was none, a boiling bloodbath, a tremendous success, and so on. Uh, and uh, in interestingly, McGeorge Bundy, who was the national security advisor for Kennedy and Johnson in later years, he, looking back in retrospect, uh, he concluded that uh, the United States probably should have pulled out of Vietnam in 1965 after the Indonesia coup because they'd already won the war. Uh, Vietnam was destroyed, the region was inoculated, uh, no fear of losing the Second World War, so it was a mistake to waste uh, resources to try to 
you know, destroy the last traces. Uh, I should say that the same reasoning held for Cuba. Uh, as soon as, right away, as soon as Cuba liberated itself in 1959, uh, within months there were internal plans to overthrow the government. Uh, bombing started a couple of months later. When Kennedy came in, it all escalated pretty sharply. Uh, Kennedy had, he intended to uh, concentrate on Latin American issues. He had a Latin American mission uh, headed by Arthur Schlesinger. And they gave a report to the incoming president, which is very much worth reading. It was given, it was summarized by Schlesinger, well-known liberal historian. Uh, he explained to the incoming president that the problem in Cuba is what he called the Castro idea of taking matters into your own hands, an idea which might uh, influence others in the region who face similar problems and might try to do the same thing so the virus would spread contagion. And the, uh, uh, the cure was the typical, the usual one. Let's try to destroy the virus and uh, let's protect the region. And right then started the series of military coups, first in Brazil, then all over the place, uh, installing really murderous, vicious regimes. Finally reached Central America in the 80s, a plague of repression like nothing that ever happened in, in the hemisphere. And uh, they couldn't quite get rid of the virus, but it was contained. The terror war restricted any likelihood of growth and development, of course, is a, a very tough embargo that was imposed and still remains, uh, because the, the CIA explained that the problem with Cuba is what they called Cuba Castro's successful defiance of policies going back to the Monroe Doctrine, that's 1823, which proclaimed that the U.S., should dominate the hemisphere, couldn't do it then. The British were a deterrent, but uh, now they could do it. And uh, that can't be tolerated. Uh, and uh, if you take a look at the policy, it gives you a lot of insight into how foreign policy is formulated. Uh, for for 30, 30 or 40 years, public opinion in the United States has been strongly in favor of uh, normalizing relations with Cuba. Uh, it's normal for public opinion to be dismissed in what we call democracies. Uh, but more interesting in this case is that major sectors of U.S. business want to normalize relations. That includes uh, agribusiness, uh, energy, pharmaceuticals, and quite significant parts of the business world. They want to normalize relations. And their uh, concerns are dismissed. That is unusual, not unique. There are other cases, and they're interesting cases. But the state dedication to punishing successful defiance overwhelms the usual uh, modalities of policy formation, which are typically in the hands of private capital. That shows there's a really significant state interest involved. There are other cases, and you learn a lot from them. Unfortunately, these are not studied in international relations theory, which is quite unfortunate, but if you look at them carefully, you can learn a lot. Well, uh, as I said, American decline started quickly. Uh, meanwhile, uh, subversion and violence continued through the South. Don't have to run through that. Um, you're familiar with it. It goes on constantly. Horrible story. 
well, uh, Europe was particularly important in the grand area planning for obvious reasons. Uh, and there were plans uh, put in place right away for, for <coughs> Europe to be uh, reconstituted, reconstructed. <coughs> but there was a preliminary commit, uh, condition. In order to reconstruct, uh, you know, thanks. In order, before Europe could reconstruct, be reconstructed, it was necessary to impose what's called stability, uh, meaning subordination to U.S. power. That meant it was necessary to destroy the anti-fascist resistance, which was the first target of U.S. and British forces when they invaded the continent. first in Italy, then Greece, then beyond. Uh, that meant uh, <clears throat> destroying the labor movement, independent labor movement, and, and the left, which was the core of the anti-fascist resistance, and reinstating uh, the traditional order, including plenty of fascist collaborators. It began during the war, when the British and Americans started marching up through Italy, and uh, was carried out consistently throughout the region often very bloody as in Greece, plenty of subversion as in Italy. Uh, Germany was, of course, particularly important, powerful state, and it was necessary to <coughs> destroy veto, uh, veto union constitutions, uh, force, forcefully uh, terminate social experiments, and in general to uh, uh, wall off Western Germany from the Eastern Zone. That was George Kennan's phrase. Right? The wall off the West to ensure that there wouldn't be any contagion coming from elements of radical democracy in the East. And that was done. Uh, the Marshall Plan came along. It doubt doubtless uh, aided European construction, but that wasn't its only goal. Uh, in large part, the Marshall Plan was, in fact, a taxpayer subsidy to major U.S. corporations, and that's appreciated by the beneficiaries. Uh, they don't read the foreign policy literature, they just look at their records. Uh, so the Reagan administration pointed out that the Marshall Plan set the stage for large amounts of private U.S. direct investment in Europe, uh, laying the groundwork for the rise of <clears throat> post-war multinational corporations. And Business Week, Maine Business Journal, described the multinational corporations as the economic expressions of the political framework established by post-war policymakers in which American business prospered and expanded uh, on overseas orders fueled initially by the dollars of the Marshall Plan that protected from negative developments like, say, a labor movement or something like that uh, by the umbrella of American power. Uh, it was always recognized and feared that Europe might follow an independent course, maybe sort of Gaullist course of you know, Europe, independent Europe from uh, the Atlantic to the Urals. And there were measures taken to prevent that. One of them is NATO. And it's quite interesting to see what happened to NATO when the theoretical pretext for it, you know, the Russian hordes disappeared. Come back to that in a moment. Well, meanwhile, decolonization followed its uh, agonizing course. By 1970, the U.S. power had significantly declined. Uh, it wasn't 50% of the world's wealth anymore. It was about 25%, which it still approximately is. 
It's still colossal, but nothing like what it was at the end of the Second World War. So there had been significant American decline. And by that time, 1970, the world was becoming what's called tripolar economically, three major economic centers, uh, North America, based in the U.S., uh, uh, Western Europe, uh, mostly German-based, and uh, East Asia, already the most dynamic uh, region in the world at that time, Japan-based, since uh, expanded to China. Uh, Twenty years later, in 1990, the Soviet Union collapsed. Now, for those interested in the reality of the Cold War, that's a very important place to look, to ask what happened when the superpower enemy collapsed. Uh, that's very instructive, and I urge you to look at it. Of course, Washington immediately instituted new policies. Now, they're all perfectly public, you know, to search uh, hidden records. Uh, the, this is the first Bush administration. They immediately uh, presented a new national security strategy, a new defense budget to deal with the world after the Russians have disappeared. And it's interesting reading. Uh, they, they started by saying that uh, we still have to maintain a huge military system that's still necessary, and not to protect ourselves from the Russians, because they're not around, but because of the technological sophistication of third world powers. Now, if you're a properly educated intellectual, you're not supposed to laugh when you hear that. Uh, we'd still need the same system because the third world is so technologically sophisticated. So we don't laugh. You've got a college degree, you understand that makes sense. Uh, the, uh, it was still necessary, they said, to maintain the defense industrial base. Now that phrase is a, a euphemism for high-tech industry. Uh, the United States and Britain believe in free markets for the weak, you know, but not for us, please. Uh, for us, we need a powerful state that... Uh, sustains the economy, saves the wealthy, and so on. And the high-tech economy, the modern high-tech economy, you know, your computers, the internet, uh, IT revolution, and so on, mostly comes out of the, the Pentagon, actually the places where I was working in the 1950s and 60s. And for about 30 years of development, mostly in the state sector, before it was handed over to private power for profit. And that's the way the economy pretty much runs goes back to the early days of British industrialization, when Britain followed the same path of state, uh, powerful state intervention to, make, to create and maintain an industrial economy. U.S. picked it up, and same with every developed society. Uh, so we still needed to, uh, the state still had to sub subsidize the defense industrial base, meaning the next stage of uh, high technology. One of the most interesting parts was about intervention forces. It concluded that we have to maintain intervention forces directed at the Middle East. Then comes an interesting phrase, uh, where the serious threats to our interest could not have been laid at the Kremlin's door. In other words, they were independent radical nationalism. So, sorry folks, we've been lying to you for 50 years, but it's too late to go on with that. Uh, so now we'll tell the truth. We need the intervention forces in case those guys get out of hand, which is, in fact, what they were for all along. But uh, uh, it was, uh, you know, it was uh, now quietly conceded. Well, um, 
Here, too, in the Middle East, it had, as everywhere, it had been necessary to destroy viruses that might spread contagion. Uh, many examples, Iran in 1953, uh, uh, Iraq uh, 10 years later, uh, uh, most significantly Nasser's Egypt, which was kind of the center of secular nationalism. Uh, that happened in 1967. Uh, the, the, war, it's, the war is described you know, justly as a Israel-Egypt war, but there was another war going on in the background, uh, a Saudi-Egyptian war. In fact, they were actually at war in southern Yemen, and there was a lot of concern that uh, secular nationalism might spread from Egypt to the uh, radical Islamic uh, dictatorships, the oil dictatorships. And in fact, Britain and the United States have pretty consistently supported radical Islamism against uh, secular nationalism uh, on Britain. Uh, uh, Curtis has a good recent book on this, and the same is true in the United States, which kind of makes sense if you think about it. The real problem is viruses that will spread contagion and maybe efforts to uh, pursue an independent path uh, so that uh, continued. Uh, 1967 also established U.S.-Israeli relations in their present form. Before that, they were so exceptional. Since then, they have been. And the reason was uh, it was recognized that Israel performed a great service to the United States and its uh, Saudi uh, ally or client, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it destroyed the threat of secular nationalism. Uh, then came what's called the Nixon Doctrine, which was public. The Nixon Doctrine, mostly for the Middle East, uh, uh, stated that uh, the structure of what they call Middle East security, meaning supporting U.S. dominance in the region, would be, of course, the dictatorships, the radical Islamic dictatorships like Saudi Arabia, our major friend. Uh, and then they the dictatorships have to be protected from the populations, and that would be done by what they called cops on the beat, uh, surrounding states, preferably non-Arab. They do better killing Arabs, and uh, they would protect the, uh, the power of the dictatorships from their own populations. Of course, and Israel, the dictatorship, the cops at the time were the, Shah, the Iran, which was then under the Shah. Uh, Pakistan providing you know, royal guard for the Saudi uh, royal family, uh, uh, intervening when it had to, uh, Turkey, major power, and now Israel. Israel could be a cop on the beat. Uh, unstated but obvious were that uh, police headquarters are in Washington and there's a branch office in London where the junior partners assign some roles now and then. Uh, so that's the basic structure of power. And it Things have changed, but the basic thinking still remains, and the core of the U.S.-Israel relationship is still sort of like that. Well, uh, let's go back to the end of the Cold War 20 years ago. Uh, the fate of NATO is quite instructive. I remember, NATO was supposed to be there to protect Western Europe from the Russian hordes. Well, no more Russian hordes. So what should happen? If anyone believed the propaganda of the preceding years, NATO should have disappeared. It's not needed anymore. That's not what happened. 
In fact, the opposite happened. It expanded. Uh, NATO immediately expanded to the east, incidentally in violation of uh, pledges to Gorbachev, who was willing to make accommodations on condition that NATO would not expand one inch to the east, as the Bush administration assured him. Now, later, when immediately NATO expanded to East Germany, then beyond, uh, Gorbachev complained. He was unhappy about this, and uh, uh, Washington explained to him that if he's naive enough to accept promises from the United States, that's his problem. Uh, but uh, uh, a real statesman would know better. So that's gone, and NATO continues to expand to the east. Uh, by now, uh, the, uh, it's gone way beyond the current uh, official role of NATO. Its official role is, uh, first of all, to serve as an international U.S.-run intervention force, but mainly to uh, protect the infrastructure of the global energy system. That means to project sea lanes, uh, pipelines all over the world, uh, uh, and uh, Europe is supposed to go along with that, as indeed it does. Uh, well, uh, at, at, that, at that, I mentioned before that there was this euphoria at the time about uh, the magnificence of uh, the U.S., a great colossus, uh, and there was. I mean, a very strange period of intellectual history. You go back to the 1990s, uh, the rhetoric of uh, Western intellectuals was astonishing. Sounds frank, uh, right like, uh, very much like uh, North Korea. Uh, so Clinton's foreign policy was uh, described by leading intellectuals as having a, uh, as entering a noble phase with a saintly glow. The first time in history a country is guided by altruism alone, dedicated to principles and values, uh, an idealistic new world uh, bent on ending inhumanity. At last it could carry forward unhindered the emerging international norm of humanitarian intervention, I mean, rendering a magnificent world. It's interesting to read. It's not that long ago, and it was all over. Well, not everybody was so enraptured, needless to say. In the Global South, the traditional victims, they saw a little bit differently. So they bitterly condemned what they called the, the so-called right of humanitarian intervention, recognizing it to be just the old right of imperial domination. And there were more, some more sober voices at home, I should say. Not everybody was following the Kim Il-sung style. And so, for example, uh, there were prestigious voices that pointed out that the United States was becoming the rogue superpower, considered the single greatest threat, greatest external threat to their societies, the third world, and that the prime rogue state today is the United States. Now, these are not marginal voices. That's Samuel Huntington, very prestigious uh, Harvard professor, and uh, uh, Robert Jervis in his presidential address for the American Political Science Association, so not quiet voices, but they were kind of drowned out in the enthusiasm for the you know, noble phase, uh, saintly glow, etc. Uh, after... Uh, 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 Bush Jr. took over uh, this uh, hostility to the United States and the global south, particularly the Middle East, uh, grew enormously. He was, uh, his approval ratings shot down 
uh, Obama has carried out an actual major feat. He succeeded in lowering his popularity in the Arab world even below Bush. It's, that's not a small achievement. Uh, he's now down, I think, to 5% approval in Egypt and similar numbers elsewhere. Well, meanwhile, the decline continued. In the last decade, something very significant happened. Uh, South America has been lost, as the term is. Uh, that uh, threat had been around for a long time. There was plenty of uh, brutal interventions and so on. But it finally happened. Uh, by uh, uh, the last decade, they've really moved for the first time in 500 years towards uh, integration, uh, independence, uh, many. Uh, the, all U.S. military bases have been kicked out of South America, and uh, uh, they're really going their own way. Just uh, right now, a new organization has been formed, SELAC, uh, which includes every country of the Western Hemisphere, apart from what's called the Anglosphere, Britain's expansion, extensions, United States and Canada. Uh, they're out. The rest of the hemisphere's moving independently. If that actually functions, there'll be another, uh, another great uh, uh, loss, with, you know, a loss to the grand area planning. And it's serious. When Nick, the Nixon administration was planning to uh, uh, destroy another virus, uh, the parliamentary democracy in Chile and install the Pinochet dictatorship, uh, the uh, National Security Council main planning body uh, uh, advised that uh, if the United States cannot control Latin America, uh, it won't be able to achieve a successful order elsewhere in the world, that is to run the west of the world. So it's critical to maintain control over Latin America. Okay, that's been lost. Well, that was bad enough, but uh, uh, the Middle East is far more significant, and that's beginning to happen. I already quoted the uh, government uh, assessments of the significance of the Middle East, and uh, uh, planners recognized, as I quoted, that if you can control the Middle East, if we continue to control the Middle East, we can control the world, and as a corollary, if you lose control of the Middle East, control of the world declines. Well, uh, uh, policies are pretty much the same. Uh, it doesn't have much to do with access to Middle East oil. The U.S. had the same policies when it was the major oil producer and wasn't taking a drop of oil from the Middle East. The issue is control, uh, and it uh, maintains. Uh, the, there's a further danger uh, in U.S. hegemony, and that's the the possibility that the Middle East might move towards some form of democracy, Middle East and Northern Africa, what's called MENA. Now, of course, there's lots of rhetoric about our yearning for democracy and on and on, but there are very elementary reasons why the United States and its allies can't tolerate democracy in the Middle East and will do anything to prevent it. Uh, to understand why, it's only necessary to look at the polls of uh, public opinion. Polls are taken by leading American polling agencies. They're released by prestigious institutions. They barely get reported, but planners certainly know about them. So, for example, they know that uh, in Egypt, the most important country, 
about 90% of the population regard the United States and Israel as the major threats to their existence. Uh, maybe 10% think of Iran as a threat. They don't like Iran, but they don't consider it a threat. Uh, in fact, about 80% think the region would be more secure if Iran would have nuclear weapons. Uh, they, in, independently of this, they don't want Iran to have nuclear weapons. But in the context of balancing the major threats, U.S. and Israel, there. 80% think that would be a good idea. And you get fairly similar figures throughout the region, varies a little bit. Well, you know, the last thing the United States and Britain and France want is for public opinion to have an influence on policy for obvious reasons. And that's supposed to be what democracy means. Uh, so they'll do everything possible to stifle uh, democracy. And uh, it's kind of interesting that the after the partial victories in Egypt, the regime is still pretty much intact, but there have been victories that shouldn't be under, understated. Uh, the first actions that were taken in Egypt are very threatening to the U.S. and Israel. Uh, right after the overthrow of Mubarak, uh, the Egyptian government uh, permitted uh, Iranian ships to transit the Suez Canal, first time in 30 years. That included military vessels, maybe submarines. Mediterranean is supposed to be an American lake. Nobody's supposed to interfere there, especially Iran, you know, a hated enemy. They're moving towards relations with, uh, better relations with Iran. Uh, Egypt also sponsored a unification between Hamas and Fatah. Whether it'll get anywhere is another question, but they did try to implement a unification. That's extremely threatening to the U.S. and Israel for 30 or 20 years, ever since the Oslo Accords. The Oslo Accords, incidentally, declare that Gaza and the West Bank are a single territorial entity. And as soon as the U.S. and Israel got the Accords through, they immediately proceeded to do the opposite, to try to break Gaza from the West Bank. That's quite important because if any kind of Palestinian entity ever arises, uh, if it's separated from Gaza, uh, not only does it lose a lot of its population, but it loses its only access to the outside world. Take a look at the geography. Whatever's left of the West Bank will be contained within Israel and the Jordanian dictatorship. And if you look at the actual plans of Israeli settlement, which are proceeding, they make that uh, even narrower. So separating it from Gaza is quite important and steps towards uh, uh, somehow overcoming that division would be uh, considered very harmful and are strongly opposed by the U.S. and Israel. Uh, the most serious problem, and the one they're really worried about, is uh, the 1979 uh, Israel-Egypt uh, peace treaty. Now, public opinion in Egypt doesn't want to get rid of the peace treaty, but they don't like the way the dictatorship interpreted it. It was interpreted right away, and Israel and the U.S. understood this, as giving license to Israel to do anything it wanted. Uh, so the Egyptian deterrent is gone. Israel's now free to attack its northern neighbor, Lebanon, as it did almost immediately, and to escalate its operations in the West Bank. Well, the Egyptian public didn't like that, still doesn't like it. And if they have any influence, they might threaten the interpretation of the treaty. Uh, the way that's described in the West is uh, 
that's threatening the cornerstone of stability in the Middle East. Stability, remember, has a technical meaning. Do what we say, you know. And uh, the, in the literal meaning, the treaty is the cornerstone of instability in the Middle East, like invading Lebanon, you know, taking over the West Bank, but not from the Western point of view. Well, there's, uh, uh, I'll skip it a lot more since uh, time's late. I'm getting told to shut up. Uh, but uh, th there's a lot more to say, but I just want to make a comment about one further crucial fact. Uh, American decline is quite real, and uh, in large measure it's self-inflicted. Now, uh, that has to do with the policies that have been instituted since the 1970s. I mean, a major change in world order took place in 1970. Uh, the f f international economic system was radically redesigned uh, in the West. That meant uh, two major developments, uh, shift towards financialization. The financial institutions have just exploded since that time. They don't do anything for the economy except create a lot of uh, concentrated wealth, but, uh, and of course, continual crashes and so on. Uh, but the economy became financialized, and uh, manufacturing be started being offshore. It continues, but somewhere else. Uh, that had a very significant effects. Uh, both of these developments had to do with kind of an underlying factor of declining rate of profit in manufacturing, which made it better to invest in games with money, you know, playing games with... Uh, speculating against currencies and so on, and uh, uh, production offshore. And in fact, what the West has been doing, the United States, Britain, and others, is living out a kind of a nightmare that was uh, described by Adam Smith and uh, David Ricardo, the classical economists. I mean, they understood very well that uh, the, uh, what, what could happen of course, they were interested in England, and they described what could happen if in England, uh, the one, the people who Smith called the masters of mankind, the you know, merchants and manufacturers, if they decided to do their business abroad, like invest abroad and import from abroad, and Smith concluded uh, the, uh, the, uh, the business would prosper, but England would suffer. However, he said this is not going to happen, and the reason is uh, because British uh, manufacturers and merchants would have what's called a home bias. They'd prefer to do their business in England. So as if by an invisible hand, uh, England would be saved from the ravages of a globalized market. Actually, that's a hard uh, paragraph to miss. It's the one time when the phrase invisible hand appears in Wealth of Nations in a critique of neoliberal globalization. Uh, David Ricardo essentially said the same thing. He said, law of comparative advantage is great, but uh, if England merchants and manufacturers decide, you know, his model to invest in Portugal and import from Portugal and so on, uh, it's all going to collapse. Uh, but he said he hoped that at least sentimental reasons would prevent them from doing this. They'd prefer for the home country to uh, prosper. So they knew what they were talking about. They were not fools. And uh, it's 
happening. We're living in the middle of that nightmare, just what they predicted. And the effect is very narrow concentration of wealth. The United States has gone off the spectrum. I mean, a tiny sector of the population is so small that the Census Bureau can't even pick them up. About a tenth of 1% is responsible for the most of the massive inequality. And of course, concentration of economic power immediately turns into concentration of political power, meaning you get further legislation to escalate the same process, and a vicious cycle is underway that uh, is leading to, you know, it's not becoming a third world, but it's having very significant effects on the nature of the society, Britain as well. I won't go into that any further, but uh, the business world understands it very well. The, um, I should say the successes of the policy are quite real, apart from the radical concentration of wealth. By shedding the remnants of political democracy, which is what is happening, uh, they're laying the basis for carrying the lethal process forward and will, as long as the victims are willing to suffer in silence, not just in the United States, of course. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this podcast, why not check out the other lectures and interviews on podacademy.org? 